Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christianity Saturdays. Tonight we are not going to have one of our longer programs, but we do hope that there will be enough in it to get people to think seriously about our topic. Tonight we are going to only discuss some basic biblical principles in comparison with the state of our modern society. We are doing this primarily because we do not know how far we have fallen unless we understand just where we really should be. We cannot even properly recognize feminism until we learn what our God expects from women, from men, and from women in relation to men. So here we are with the second segment in this series of addressing feminism in what I can only call the formerly Christian nations which can also be loosely described as white nations women today typically walk around half naked some of them wear clothing which is so revealing that they may be better off naked Doing so, they attract much attention to their physical form. But these women actually think that they are properly dressed, simply because some fabric is stretched across certain areas of their bodies. And I could hear it now, and I've heard it before, when they say, well, my nipples are covered. Then these women roam about freely, going wheresoever they desire, and they have an expectation that they will never suffer harm. I am not stating that all women who get raped deserve it. In fact, I would be the first to profess that no woman deserves to be raped. But we, as a society, are now the victims of our own feminism. It is an all-white and Christian society where hardly any man would rape a woman even if she were half-naked and out roaming the streets by herself. But the standards which we now live with, under which the modern habits of dress and behavior for women have developed, not because of Christianity, but in spite of Christianity, are the result of centuries of so-called progress and freedom in an all-white and at least marginally Christian society which is governed by the rule of law and where people have it in their hearts to care about the law. However, now And in all white nations these past 60 years or so, since the delegation of legal equality to the non-white races, we have a society crawling with non-white beasts, and they rape white women and children with alarming frequency every time they get an opportunity to do so. So we have a Negro problem, at least here in America. And we think that the Negro was raised with our values because they are, after all, 
Americans, or in Europe, British or Germans. Collectively, in America alone, they tend to rape, on the average, of about a hundred or so white women each day. And that figure represents the official statistics, which are well known to grossly underrepresent the actual reality. Today in Europe, after a century of these rather liberal ethics which have come to dominate society, the non-white Muslim hordes are allowed to come and dwell among whites. It is customary for them when they see a half-naked woman to rape her. They actually believe that half-naked women are free to rape and that they do so justifiably. That is how the Negro also thinks, but for different reasons. They act as they do because they do not have the white man's law written in their hearts, our law, for the most part, is an expression of our beings. And they actually despise the white man's law. They prefer to live by the law of the jungle where the strongest take whatsoever they desire. White men and women do not understand this because they are blinded by their own liberal egalitarian stupidity. Women think they have a right to walk around half naked and most modern men think that they should defend that right. Actually, most modern men, having been raised on five or six decades of Jewish pornography, would rather see their women half-naked anyway. This is the feminist society which we live in today, just like the ancient pagans. Men and women alike have come to worship the female form. Many women don't even realize what they are doing when they get dressed in the morning. Recently, I had an inquiry from a woman about hair covering. Of course, I won't mention her name here. But that same woman has pictures of herself on a social media page, wearing a push-up bra and showing all of her cleavage. Several pictures. Hair covering should obviously be the least of her worries. However, we see a lot of so-called Christian identity women in social media doing that same thing. Put the boobies away. Worry about them. And then think about hair covering. As a man, and I speak with a carnal mind, I could rape any women that I can that I can desire to rape. There is no woman that I cannot rape if I so desired. Not one. Not one woman is going to stop me. Of course, in this feminist society, where so many of the men are now so girlish that the women are starting to think that they are tough, women might be disillusioned into thinking that they can defend themselves against a man. But no woman is going to be able to defend herself against a truly masculine man. Perhaps we can call that illusion the Amazon Syndrome. In reality, unless a woman is lucky enough to be able to reach her sidearm before a predatory man reaches her, she is never going to be able to defend herself. Today, very few women are fortunate enough to have a sidearm. So, as a man, the only thing 
the only things that protect women from me are my Christian ethics and my respect for the law and for my fellow men along with my respect for myself and my love for my own wife. Most white men still have those same values or at least portions of them. So most women are safe most of the time from most white men. They'd rather try to trick or deceive a woman into bed than to force her. But now, having been programmed by modern society to accept all races and religions as equal, many women continue to feel safe in situations where they certainly are not safe, and most white men do not even care or notice. There was a Daily Mail headline this week which reported that women in Cologne, Germany were being publicly groped between the thighs by Africans and Arabs. The New York Times reported that these reports of attacks on women in Germany heightened tension over migrants. However, back in July, local German governments were telling German women to cover themselves in order to appease Syrian refugees. The German authorities are now concerned that the sexual assaults of German women in Cologne are being orchestrated by organized gangs of aliens, these Arab bastards. It is no wonder that they all seem to be ignorant of the ongoing rape of British children at the hands of Pakistani and Arab gangs, which has been going on for years now. But nothing is done about that either. Germany hasn't seen anything yet, as Sweden and Norway have suffered from the Arab rape of white women at epidemic levels for years. Germany is bound to that same fate. But unfortunately, I'm sorry, but fortunately for the Arabs, both the Huns and the Vikings have all been turned into emasculated little girls through the power of Jewish liberalism. So the Arabs can come to Europe and rape whoever they want. The liberal and Jewish media sells unsuspecting whites on the idea that these aliens will conform to European laws and values where they will be just like us. And that too is a deception which recent history easily refutes, but which whites continue to blindingly accept. But that is not all. On the other hand, outspoken feminist advocates in Europe are currently blaming men for the attacks on women, ignoring the fact, blatantly ignoring the fact, that the attacks on women are only being perpetrated by males of the non-white races. What a quandary we're in. The truth is this. The white nations of Europe, and when I say that by extension, of course, I mean the Canadians, the Australians, the, the, the South Africans, the New Zealanders, and the Americans. The white nations of Europe, which are predominantly descended from the ancient Israelites and related nations of Scripture, are being punished by Yahweh their God for their disobedience. And these Arab and Negro bastards are just one form of this punishment.
While Christian society in this age of Jewish liberalism has turned a blind eye to women who, buying their clothes from the Jewish merchants, now walk around half-naked, it is not at all Christian or moral to walk around freely in such a manner. Rather, Christian women are commanded to adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, as we may read in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Here we are going to read what the law of Yahweh our God says about rape. <clears throat> that may help put us that may help us put the problem into at least some biblical perspective. From Deuteronomy chapter twenty two. If a man be found lying with a woman married to a husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman. So shalt thou put away evil from Israel. If a damsel that is a virgin betrothed to a husband, and a man find her in the city and lie with her, then ye shall bring them both out under the gate of that city, and ye shall stone them with stones that they die. The damsel, because she cried not, being in the city, and an understanding of the compactness of ancient cities, assures one that people would have heard her cries if she had cried, in defense of being raped. So she must have agreed to it if she didn't cry. And the man, because he has humbled his neighbor's wife, so thou shalt put away evil from among you. But if a man finds a betrothed damsel in the field, and this would go for a married wife as well, and the man forces her and lies with her, then the man only that lays with her shall die, but unto the damsel thou shalt do nothing. There is in a damsel no sin worthy of death. For as when a man riseth against his neighbor and slays him, so even so it is in this matter. For he found her in the field, and the betrothed damsel cried, and there was none to save her. And in this instance, it must be taken for granted that the betrothed or married damsel cried, because there are no witnesses to state otherwise, she being in the field. So we see in a, that in ancient times, in ancient times, rape was a problem whenever women were left alone. And that problem necessitated the creation of these laws in Israel. Even for Israelites, the need for these laws, punishing the culprits among themselves, are clearly evident. But these laws are not necessarily for the sake of the individual woman alone. Rather, they are for the sake of the woman's husband, or betrothed soon-to-be husband, because he has been deprived of the wife's chastity and virginity. The next law concerning rape in that same chapter helps to substantiate this assertion from the same chapter of Deuteronomy, from 22.8, I'm sorry. If a man finds a damsel that is a virgin, which is not betrothed, in other words, she belongs to no one but her father, who can't marry her, 
and lay hold on her, and lie with her, and they be found. Then the man that lay with her shall give unto the damsel's father fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he has humbled her. He may not put her away all of his days. Think about that. Would you let your teenage daughter run around at night with her friends, especially since she will probably be wearing spandex pants or tight jeans or short shorts and a skimpy top? Would you let her run around with her friends at night when the first man who rapes her gets to keep her as a wife for 50 bucks? It was dangerous in the ancient world for a woman to be out in the fields alone. And typically, they wore far more clothing back then. The lesson behind these laws punishing rape is that women were not left alone and vulnerable in the ancient world, not without great risk. So, it should be with Christians today. There's really no difference. If we truly care about our women, and it is arrogant not to care, most modern whites would protest the assertion. But we live in a feminist society that most modern whites don't even comprehend. The liberty to wear alluring clothing is a sign of the dominance of women over men. And it is not at all Christian. Keep your boobies in your shirt. Women who insist on wearing alluring clothing are feminists, and the men who encourage them are no better. Today, most men defend that liberty, and they do not realize it, but they are also feminists. Christians shall suffer for this liberty, because it is really no liberty at all. As the Apostle Peter warns in 2 Peter chapter 2, For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped of them who live in error or in sin. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought in bondage. In ancient Greek society, as well as in the ancient Hebrew society, women in most of the city-states had few so-called rights, what are called rights in, in, in this modern world. I, I don't know where people think they get rights from. They get liberties with their God. But people don't have rights. They were at all times and throughout their entire lives kept under the control and the protection and one goes with the other. The control and protection of their fathers, husbands, brothers, or other next-of-kin male relatives, if none of their immediate male family members survived, they, their control would fall to an uncle, a cousin, the next-of-kin according to the Hebrew law. In this respect, ancient Germanic society treated women the same way as the Greeks and Hebrews. Women had no role whatsoever in politics, not in Greece, not in Rome, not among the Hebrews, the Egyptians, nor anywhere else in white society. Women, at least those with 
husbands of substance didn't work. Such women generally kept to their houses and managed their husbands' households. There are a few exceptions to this in the ancient pagan world. One exception in the Greek and Mesopotamian societies were women who were temple servants or pagan temple priestesses. The priestesses of pagan temples actually only interfaced with the public on behalf of the men who ran the temples and pagan temple prostitutes which were often male as well as female. Rome was a little more liberal, allowing women certain property rights beyond those of the Greeks and rights to maintain certain property after a divorce. Ancient Sparta was also a little more liberal than Athens or most other Greek states, mostly because of the highly militarized society which kept men out of the house and off with the army, leaving many chores to women which, traditionally, men were more accustomed to perform. But Sparta was forever in a state of war, and its necessarily liberal attitudes towards women did not save it in the end. In the United States and Great Britain, the Second World War took many women out of their homes and put them in factories so that the men could fight the war. The Spartan society was much the same 2,500 years sooner. On the Greek and Hebrew estates, as we saw in the first segment of our discussion on feminism, where we had read from Proverbs chapter 31, for instance, it was the wives who managed the household responsibilities, oversaw the servants or slaves, if there were any, gathered the food, did the gardening and cooking, made the clothing, and whatever whatever other chores needed to be done to maintain the family. Women with less affluent husbands worked outside the home, but they worked assisting their husbands at their own vocations, and not for some factory owner across town. The introduction of women into the workplace introduces lust and the sexual pursuit of women into the workplace. Men will naturally compete for the intention of the woman and constantly try to win her favor. Without a husband around, the woman becomes a target for every immoral man, supervisor, or co-worker who will seek to find some way to corrupt her throughout the entire duration of each and every day. There is no having a woman in the workplace without the constant lure of infidelity and enticement to adultery. That's just the way it is. That's not always on a woman's part. It's usually on the part of the men that work with that woman. As for travel, throughout the ancient world, wealthier women, and especially maidens, never left home without a male escort. But less fortunate women often had to go to the markets or did other necessary chores without escorts, women of poor husbands. Often these poorer women 
would travel in groups to minimize the danger. This is because women were frequently seized and sold into slavery, even as sex slaves, or taken off to the estates of men who thought they may make attractive concubines. The ancient pagan world was also a world of the law of the fittest, or, as we may say, the law of the jungle, where might made right. The opening pages of the histories of Herodotus attribute the problems of the world of his time to the propensity first of the Phoenicians and then of the Greeks and others to kidnap unattended women from the shores of the neighboring tribes. We are reverting. We are slowly reverting to these same circumstances. We have reports of tens of thousands of Eastern European women kidnapped and brought to Palestine to be sex slaves. Those reports are real. We have hundreds of thousands of missing children every year. Search the basements of the synagogues. The rabbis took them. I could almost guarantee it. Our modern society is artificial. Our confidence that our women may walk around in short skirts or in spandex pants and not be raped or molested is an illusion. Only Christian values prevented such things in the past, even among our own people. Today, however, we are taxed into poverty to pay for a police state imagining that it will protect us and buy us peace. Christians have abandoned their God and their values and the cost of maintaining such a society without them or with others who do not share them is not even apparent to them but it's going to more and more become apparent. Christian women should not be half naked. And they should not even be out roaming about by themselves. The story of our first sin is a parable warning us of this very thing. where the serpent had found the woman in the garden alone and took advantage of her. In Genesis chapter 2 we read, And Yahweh God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helpmate for him. And out of the ground Yahweh God formed and this is describing something which evidently already happened, formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helpmate for him.
This episode is a parable which teaches man that none of the other beasts are ever suitable for a wife, except that creature which Yahweh made specifically for that purpose, who is flesh of his own flesh and bone of his own bone. That man's wife must therefore be of his same race. Of course, it also must be understood that the same law would apply to women as well, that their husbands must be of their same race. So the creation count account continues. And Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs... and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib, which Yahweh God had taken from man, made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh and they were both naked the man and his wife and were not ashamed so we see that the woman was created for the benefit of the man to be a helpmate unto him this is the natural role of women in accordance with the creation of God the woman who rejects this role rejects God so in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul of Tarsus informs his readers likewise. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. But in Genesis chapter 3, we read of the serpent's temptation of the woman, and the woman is apparently alone. Later, after the woman in turn convinces her husband to sin, the man attempts to lay the blame on a woman, and the man is punished accordingly. In truth, because the woman was made for the benefit of the man, so the man was actually responsible for the woman's actions from the beginning, and he should not have left her alone. So the serpent found the woman naked, and while she was not ashamed, kind of like today's women, after she was deceived and seduced, both her and her husband realized that they should probably keep on some clothing. In their sin, they were ashamed. So it is today, and there are half-naked women constantly being shamed by wandering serpents, and they're not really shamed yet. They don't know it, but it's time they restored their clothing. Ultimately, whatever women remain will be back under the control and protection of husbands, as Christian women should be. In Genesis chapter 3, the woman is scolded by God for her sin. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Some women read this as a punishment, that the woman would be ruled over by her husband. But that is not the case. Rather, 
the woman, had ventured from the original order of creation, where she was to be a helpmate to her husband, and allowed the serpent to persuade her into a sin while she was apart from her husband. The commandment of Yahweh God in Genesis chapter 3 insists that the woman return to the natural order for which she was created and be subject to her husband. But the man's punishment was introduced with the words because thou hast hearkened under the voice of thy wife whereby we see that the man should have taken the lead and stayed on the godly path rather than submitting to his wife and following in her sin Adam was the first feminist so in turn man must be subject to God and therefore Christian men must be subject to Christ. Paul makes an analogy of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where he wrote, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So the Christian assembly without Christ is just as likely to be deceived as Eve was apart from her husband. So Paul warns, in Ephesians. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, and he gave himself for it. And then, Paul also says, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man has ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord, the church, or the assembly, the people of Israel. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. If we're members of his body, flesh, and bones, then we're a legitimate lawful wife. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Just as a wife must be subject to her husband, a man must be subject to Christ, and this is the natural order of God's creation, which Adam and Eve had disregarded at the beginning. So Eve was corrupted by the devil. However, the man must have as much care for his wife as Christ had for the assembly.
The children of Israel collectively as a nation, being the bride of Christ, in essence Christ was willing to go so far as to die for his own wife, which is the analogy which Paul is making in that chapter. Yet no man can be compelled to die for a wife where he has no expectation that she will be obedient to his wishes. Nobody's going to die for a feminist bitch. Christ died for his people Israel so that every knee must ultimately bow to him. And the husband should have the same expectation of his own family that the wife he is willing to sacrifice his own life for must subject herself to him in turn this is the natural order of the creation of God and to depart from it is rebellion the proof is all around us that the consequences are the same as they were back in Genesis chapter 3. Paul used the analogy of the seduction of Eve on another occasion in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where he advised that men and their wives should not be apart from one another and he wrote nevertheless to avoid fornication let every man and of course I'm quoting the King James version let every man have his own wife that's the version Moses used and let every woman have her own husband let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence likewise also the wife unto the husband and that verse is a euphemism describing the sexual obligation which is also described in the Old Testament the wife has not power of her own body but the husband and likewise also the husband has not power of his own body but the wife and in other words the husband should submit himself consensually to a willingly subject wife. Defraud ye not one the other. In other words, don't deprive each other of your presence. Except it be with consent for a time that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. In other words, if you're apart from your husband or your wife for any length of time, the adversary is possibly going to tempt you. And you may do things that you regret later. So women should not wander about alone. And especially having no shame of their nakedness. It is an invitation to being seduced by serpents or raped by beasts and that is just punishment for rebelling against the natural order of society as it was created 
by Yahweh our God. The sin of Genesis chapter 3 is now being repeated daily throughout all white nations. It's evident in every little niglet swinging from the hip of one woman or another. And our end is worse than our beginning. Paul was not alone among New Testament writers demanding that wives be subject to their husbands. The Apostle Peter had written in chapter 3 of his first epistle, likewise the wives being subject to their own husbands. In order that if some, meaning some husbands, then disobey the word, through the conduct of the wives, they shall have advantage without the word. In other words, the husbands, they're not caring about the scripture, but they'll have the advantage of the conduct of good Christian wives. Observing in fear your pure conduct, of which the dress must not be outward with braids of hair and applications of gold or putting on of garments, but the hidden man, or in this case woman, and Paul's using the word man to describe woman because woman is part of mankind. But the hidden man of the heart with the incorruptibility of the gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious before Yahweh. For thusly at one time also the holy women who have hope in Yahweh had dressed themselves being subject to their own husbands. As Sarah had obeyed Abraham calling him Master, whose children you have been born to do good and not fearing any terror. The men likewise, and this passage is from the, quoted from the Christogenian New Testament for diverse reasons, the men likewise living together in accordance with the knowledge that with the feminine is the weaker vessel, imparting honor as they are also fellow heirs of the favor of life, for your prayers not to be hindered, if you don't treat your wife in a godly manner, your prayers are not going to be answered, according to Peter. So a good and modest Christian woman can influence her husband to be a good Christian as well, even if he does not read the scriptures, thereby being a benefit to the larger community. And like Paul, Peter also admonishes men to treat their women with love and respect in return for their submission. Feminism is not new. It dates to before the creation of Adam. With all, with all certainty, the elevation of the female form to an ideal of worship in the ancient world was one manifestation of feminism, and it actually preceded, preceded feminism as we know it today in the modern age. It all started when men started to worship the form of women. In the modern world, the age of modern feminism was accompanied with that same thing.
by the elevation of the female form to an ideal of worship. But now it has been packaged as art and entertainment rather than in some pagan religious cult. But the result is nevertheless the same. We can see that feminism took root in the society of ancient Israel, and the people were to be punished for it harshly. This is apparent in Isaiah chapter 3. In a judgment upon Jerusalem, where Yahweh said through the prophet, Moreover, Yahweh saith, Because the Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, and making a tinkling with their feet, the way that they attracted sexual attention to themselves in those times. Today they just wear shirts with necklines down to their belly buttons. Therefore, the Lord will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will discover their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the bravery of their tinkling ornaments about their feet, and their calls, and their round tires like the moon, referring to a certain type of ornament. The chains, and the bracelets, and the mufflers, the bonnets, and the ornaments of the legs, and the headbands, and the tablets, and the earrings, the rings, the nose jewels, they had them in those days too. The changeable suits of apparel, and the mantles, and the wimples, and the crisping pins, the glasses, and the fine linen, and the hoods, and the veil. And it shall come to pass that instead of sweet smell, there shall be stink. And instead of a girdle, a rent, meaning that it'll be torn. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a stomacher, a girding of sackcloth. And burning instead of beauty, thy men shall fall by the sword, and thy mighty in the war. And her gate shall lament and mourn, and she being desolate shall sit upon the ground. She being desolate, she who is without children. Contrast the extravagant jewelry of these women with the Christian admonition of Paul, where he said that women should adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, and not with broided hair, which we see a similar reference to here. Or gold, or pearls, or costly array, and we see all the jewelry references here, the bling, the bangles. Women also adorn themselves with jewelry and expensive garments and 
extravagantly arranged hair in order to attract sexual attention to themselves. This is a form of feminism, and it is not Christian. The Christian woman can exude a godly beauty in modesty and simplicity. I wouldn't castigate a woman for wearing small earrings or a bow in her hair or putting a beret in it. But if we look at the Roman women page at Christagenia, there's a lot of busts of Roman period women, which are actually archaeological findings. They're not recently made. They're 2,000 years old which showed the extravagant manner in which women braided their hair, piled high on top of their heads with all these fancy designs. It would take hours to do something like that. And that's vanity. It's vanity spending hours doing something like that when you could probably be working to feed your family or your poor neighbor's family or anything else but doing something like that. That's vanity. The very next verse, following what we have just cited from Isaiah, is in Isaiah chapter 4. However, just because the chapter changes does not mean that the subject changes. And it says, and in that day, referring to the judgment mentioned at the end of chapter 3, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel, only let us be called by thy name to take away our reproach. In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy. Even everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof, by the spirit of judgment, and by the spirit of burning. And this can't be, even though, as Clifton Emmerheiser recently pointed out, this has a apparent short-term fulfillment in ancient Israel. Many of these statements do not fit that short-term fulfillment. In that day we did not see Jerusalem become beautiful and glorious. Those who remain behind in Israel and in Jerusalem after the captivities were cursed by Yahweh. Here, those that remain in Jerusalem after this catastrophic event are blessed. So this is speaking about a time which has not yet come. That spirit of burning mentioned here by Isaiah forebodes a time of great trial. Clifton Amheiser in his Watchman's Teaching Letters, beginning with number 199, which was published in November of 2014, wrote on this passage from Isaiah at length. We won't quote from it too often, but would refer you to it. What we see here is the repentance and recovery from a feminist and race-mixing society. 
among godly women. And, and the race-mixing society is evident because Yahweh shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. Among godly women, we often see it portrayed in scripture that it is a reproach for a woman not to have children. Here in Isaiah, it is prophesied that we shall reach a time where repentant women are so desperate to have children, because they are childless, that they will be willing to share a husband with six other women in order to do so. Of course, it is a result of war that there are not sufficient men for all of them. But that war is a judgment against the feminism we see described in Isaiah chapter 3. There are many other passages in Scripture and in the laws of God which inform us of the standing which women are expected to have in a godly society. Like we had described of the ancient Greeks and Hebrews alike, it was not even customary that women could own, never mind inherit, any real property. In fact, it was usually forbidden. But in the book of Numbers, in certain cases, this was recognized as an injustice. So women were permitted to inherit their father's property, but only in cases where there were no sons. Where there were sons, the women could expect to be cared for by the sons. When a man died, the eldest son customarily inherited the bulk of the family estate. As sometimes portions went to other sons, and the eldest son would also look after his mother and his unmarried sisters. That is why, for example, it was important for Tamar to have a son from Judah, so that she would be looked after by her son in her old age. So in Numbers chapter 26 we read, in the reckoning of the sons of Manasseh, and Zelophedad, The son of Hefer had no sons but daughters, and the names of the daughters of Zelophedad were Mela and Noah, Noah being used as a fe- of a female in this instance, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. Then in chapter 27 of that same book we see this account. Then the daughters of Zelophedad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And these are the names of his daughters, Melah, Noah, and Haglah, and Milcah, and Tirzah. And they stood before Moses, and before Eleazar the priest, and before the princes, and all the congregation by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, and he was not in the company of them that gathered themselves together against Yahweh in the company of Korah, but died in his own sin and had no sons. Why should the name of our father be done away from among his family 
because he had no sons. Give unto us, therefore, a possession among the brethren of our father. And Moses brought their case before Yahweh. And Yahweh spoke unto Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophedad speak right. Thou shalt surely give them a possession of an inheritance among their father's brethren. And thou shalt cause the inheritance of their father to pass unto them. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then ye shall cause his inheritance to pass unto his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then ye shall give his inheritance unto his brethren. And if he has no brethren, then ye shall give his inheritance unto his father's brethren. And if his father had no brethren, then ye shall give his inheritance unto his kinsmen that is next to him of family, and he shall possess it. And it shall be unto the children of Israel a statute of judgment, as Yahweh commanded Moses. If the law was not made for the daughters of Zelophedad, they, being unmarried, would have been forced into whoredom, or to be concubines, having no other way to support themselves. They had no brother to inherit their father's land, and their brother would be expected to support them. But restrictions on this sort of inheritance were also set in place to ensure that the property inherited by daughters did not fall into the hands of another tribe even when the daughters had married. This concern is raised in Numbers chapter 36. And the chief fathers of the families of the children of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of the sons of Joseph came near, and spoke before Moses and before the princes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel. And they said, Yahweh commanded my Lord to give the land for an inheritance. by lot to the children of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by Yahweh to give the inheritance of Zelophedad, our brother, unto his daughters. And if they be married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the children of Israel, then shall their inheritance be taken from the inheritance of our fathers. In other words, a portion of the land assigned to Manasseh would be transferred unwittingly to another tribe and shall be put to the inheritance of the tribe whereunto they are received. It would be transferred because the husband customarily controlled the property of his wife. So it shall be taken from the lot of our inheritance. This concern which they had raised is then answered in this manner. And Moses commanded the children of Israel according to the word of Yahweh, saying, The tribe of the sons of Joseph had said well. This is the thing which Yahweh doth command concerning the daughters of Zelophedad, saying, Let them marry to whom they think best, since there is no father or brother to decide for them. Only to the family of the tribe of their father shall they marry. So shall not the inheritance of the children of Israel remove from tribe to tribe. For every one of the children of Israel shall keep himself 
to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter that possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the children of Israel shall be wife under one of the family of the tribe of her father, that the children of Israel may enjoy every man the inheritance of his fathers. Neither shall the inheritance remove from one tribe to another tribe, but every one of the tribes of the children of Israel shall keep to himself his own inheritance. So a woman may inherit the property of her father. But we see that it was customary that that would become the property of her husband when she got married. And that's why this law was made. But if she married outside of her own tribe, she forfeits the inheritance of her father because it must stay within the tribe according to the law. In addition to the need for a special law so that women without male siblings could enjoy and support themselves from the property owned by their deceased fathers. By the law of God, the legal standing of women in society was so restricted that they could not even make contracts or promises without the blessing of a father or husband. We read this in Numbers chapter 30. And Moses spoke under the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which Yahweh has commanded. If a man vows a vow unto the Lord, under Yahweh, or swears an oath to bind his soul with a bond, that's called a contract today, right? He shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So men have a right to make contracts or agreements on their own and shall be held to them when they do. And then in verse 3 we read, If a woman also vows a vow unto Yahweh, and binds herself with a bond, being in her father's house in her youth, and her father hears the vow, and her bond wherewith she has bound her soul, and her father shall hold his peace at her, then all her vows shall stand, and every bond wherewith she has bound her soul shall stand. Now that silence on the part of the father is a recognized form of agreement, and that is a subject of law and diplomacy from Roman times. But if her father disallow her in the day that he hears, not any of her vows or of her bonds wherewith she has bound her soul shall stand. And Yahweh shall forgive her because her father disallowed her. Not any of her vows or her bonds shall stand. The language in the King James is a little difficult. But the father, we see that the father has a right to veto any contract or promise made by any of his daughters. The daughter cannot make a contract that the father disapproves of. 
it won't stand. And Yahweh shall forgive her because she made a vow and her father annulled it. Her father vetoed it. And her father has that right. The girl cannot make a vow or an oath or a contract or an agreement without her father's permission. And if she has at all a husband when she vowed or uttered aught of her lips wherewith she bound her soul and her husband heard it and held his peace at her in the day that he heard it then her vow shall stand and her bonds wherewith she bound her soul shall stand if the husband is silent his silence is a form of consent and Yahweh God holds the woman responsible for her vow but if her husband disallowed her on the day that he heard it and then he shall make her vow which she vowed and that which she uttered with her lips wherewith she bound her soul of no effect the husband can veto the wife's promise or the wife's agreement a husband has a right to veto any promise or contract made by his wife. And the Lord shall forgive her. Yahweh shall forgive her of making a vow or promise. He won't hold it against her because her husband vetoed it. But every vow of a widow and of her that is divorced wherewith they have bound their souls shall stand against her because she has no husband or father to control her. And if she vowed in her husband's house or bound her soul by bond with an oath and her husband heard it and held his peace at her and disallowed her not then all her vow shall stand and every bond wherewith she bound her soul shall stand she'll be held responsible for them. But if her husband has utterly made them void on the day he heard them, you make a promise, your husband finds out, and he says, no way, you're not doing it. And you can't do it. You have to submit yourself to your husband. But if her husband is utterly made them void on the day he heard them then whatsoever proceeded out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning the bond of her soul shall not stand her husband has made them void and Yahweh God shall forgive her meaning that he won't hold it against her he won't punish her for not fulfilling her vows because her husband made them void this reiterates what we have seen above and the fact that a husband should have such an authority over his wife is from God every vow verse 13 and every binding oath to afflict the soul her husband may establish it or her husband may make it void so the husband has full control over the vows of the wife, the contracts, the agreements, whether or not they may stand. But if her husband altogether holds her peace at her from day to day, then he establishes all her vows. He's supporting them. He's giving his consent. 
or all her bonds which are upon her. He confirms them because he held his peace at her in the day that he heard them. But if he shall anyways make them void after that he heard them, then he shall bear her iniquity. In other words, you can't agree today or be silent today because silence is agreement and then change your mind tomorrow. You can't do it. You will bear the iniquity of the wife because you've approved of them and then tried to make them void. These are the statutes which Yahweh commanded Moses. Between a man and his wife, between the father and his daughter, being yet in her youth in her father's house. So the husband is responsible for his wife, and the father is responsible for his daughter. Adam was responsible for Eve, and when he left her alone, she was corrupted by his enemies. Yahweh God did not let him get away with blaming the woman, even though he tried. Today's men, are to blame for the rise of feminism just as much as any of the women. Now, society is so far gone that women cannot be forced into subjection by husbands or fathers. All such a woman needs to do is to call a lawyer, and he will use the weight of society to ensure that the woman remains liberated. But a Christian woman should recognize this, that the will of God seeks her to be a good Christian wife, and that a good Christian wife is subject to her husband. The circumstances of our society are not an excuse to disregard the will of God. A Christian woman should want to satisfy God, and knowing the ideal which scripture outlines, voluntarily seek to conform herself to that ideal to the greatest extent possible. On the other hand, a woman should know that men are not going to risk their own lives to defend feminist women. There is no compulsion for men to do such a thing and no reward in it for them if they ventured. If a feminist woman needs help when the Arab and Negro hordes come to rape her stupid ass, perhaps she should call that same lawyer she would use against her husband to see if he would help her. We can love all those of our own race, but how much empathy should we have for sinners? All Christians, men and women, must reject the feminist society. But in order to do that, first, they must be able to recognize it. To recognize it, they should look to the model of the family as it is organized in Scripture and do their best to conform themselves to it. There should be no other schematic for Christians to follow. This concludes our presentation this evening, but we are not finished with this series on feminism. 
In the weeks ahead, we hope to discuss the origin of Protestant feminism, which, so far as we can find, seems to have started with a woman named Margaret Fell in the mid-17th century at the founding of the Society of Friends, generally known as the Quakers. She wrote an essay in the 1660s, I believe it was, twisting Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 14 to assert that Christian women should speak and teach and preach in church, the exact opposite of Paul's intended meaning. So doing this, we shall probably reiterate some of our opinions on women speaking in public. We will also discuss the feminism of Victorian England, where women first got the political and economic advantage over men that we are experiencing in our court systems today, and the Jewish role in the advancement of feminism. There are already some excellent articles written on those topics, so we will be citing them. We also hope to discuss marriage at length here in the near future, and even endeavor, and we believe we can, to define what marriage really is from a purely Christian biblical perspective. When we do that, we also hope to discuss some of the benefits of having a family which operates in accordance with the design of our God. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. And good night.
Open my